welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Great that you could join us today because I'm talking with Mike Twydale. He's a professor in the School of Information Sciences at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. As you'll hear, Mike is actually English and he has some really interesting reflections to make about his experience of the tenure process and, and not having any real pressure from that. He also has numerous citations for excellent teaching, including an outstanding IS teacher award in 2017. So he spends some time talking about his teaching approaches and also about how he's developing ideas around a notion of agile research and what this means. A good part of the chat, though, is reflecting on his experiences in stepping up to a leadership role as program director for a new master's degree. Having thought he would never be any good at leadership, it's really interesting to hear how he's developed his own leadership style by playing to his own strengths and the complementary strengths of those around him. We also talk about the value of storytelling and hearing multiple stories to make explicit the processes behind academia. And he talks about metrics, a really interesting discussion there about indicators only. Enjoy. Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome. And uh, an English accent, and you're joining me from um, Champaign-Urbana. That's right, um, in Illinois, in the middle of the prairie. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been there for? Um, so 21 years. I moved out in 1997. I was at Lancaster University in the computer science department before that. Yeah. And is computer science your background? Uh, yes. So I did undergrad in computer science and PhD in computer science. Uh, but now I'm in the School of Information Sciences, which is one of the iSchools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you went out in 97, were you thinking that that was a permanent move? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> I thought this was going to be you know, my little adventure. I would try it out. Um, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out because um, – they were at the time called the Graduate School of Library and Information Science. And, you know, I was saying to the dean who was recruiting me, but I'm not a librarian. And she said, it's OK. You don't have to be a librarian. Uh, we're broadening out um, what we do at the school. Uh, and that was indeed the case. And so it was interesting to move from a computer science department which had a a strong reputation of being very multidisciplinary. So at Lancaster we'd worked with um, sociologists in particular but in human computer interaction we also work with psychologists. So I was used to that and I was wondering well you know are they actually you know meaning what they say about being multidisciplinary and indeed they were. Yeah yeah And that's always tough. What were some of the challenges? Um, So firstly, it was getting to know um, a different kind of student. So there were some students with a strong technical background, some who did not have a strong technical background. Um, There were many who wanted to be public librarians or academic librarians, but others Mm. wanting to to move into user experience design in the corporate sector, something I was sort of familiar with from a CS department. There's the whole American academic 
process and tradition that I had to learn, um, including all this thing called tenure, which um, used to exist in England, but had been abolished before I could even get it. So it had never been an issue. And then apparently this was something that everybody panicked about. And I really did not understand this moving in. So did you go into a tenure track position there? Yes, I went again. I feel my whole life has been a series of exceptions. Um, so they made an offer to me about what the University of Illinois is called a Q appointment. So that means I go in with the title of associate professor. So that's one up from assistant professor. Um, but you do not go in with automatic tenure. So you go for an accelerated promotion process after three years. Um, and then it's the same process as if you'd gone in as an assistant professor straight out of your PhD, which you'd normally do after six or seven years. Um, so this uh, was explained to me, this is often the case where they're offering um, a position to somebody who's senior but doesn't quite fit the normal pattern. So, for example, it could be somebody who's been an outstanding corporate researcher, but like, you know, they teach students. Uh, in my case, um, it was, well, we know he can do research. We know he can do teaching, but he's only ever taught computer scientists. Can he actually teach our students? Um, so it seemed to me fair enough to do. And so I went through the process, um, which I think was relatively benign at Illinois. It seemed a very fair process. Um, and I was successful. But always at the back of my mind was, well, if I'm not successful, I'll go back home. Uh, yeah. So you didn't have pressure on yourself in that? You no. didn't put pressure on yourself in that way? No. It, it, and I think it was partly because I was thinking going to America is an adventure. And if it doesn't pan out, so what? Um, and, you know, I, I wasn't keeping a job open at Lancaster for me. So it wasn't like I got immediate fallback, but I was fairly confident I could get a job back in England somewhere. And that, I think, gave me, you know, a, a huge backup compared to other people because it was like, OK, I'm treating this. If I say I'm treating it as a game, that sounds dismissive, but it is just a, a set of rules rather than something that's about my identity. Because I see many Americans um, who want to go through the academic process, but it's almost like if they don't get tenure, then they're, they're not a proper professor anymore. Yes. That's, yeah. That terrible pressure makes you, I think, both fearful and inclined to be very conformist. So you're trying to guess what will be pleasing unto the tenure committee, whereas I think your job as a professor is to come up with, you know, original, weird, strange, outrageous research, which will prove that you deserve tenure. But then, you're, you know, if you're under this strange pressure, you'll do all the things that don't prove you deserve tenure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting set of paradoxes there. There are, yes, very yeah. much so. Yep. And you said you didn't know you should have been scared anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where it seemed to me when I looked at the written documents, they seemed fine to me. Um, the University of Illinois is a land-grant university, so it was set up um, with the Moral Act. We were founded 1867, so we just celebrate 150th anniversary. But that means that the university is there to serve the people of Illinois, and you could do that by, you know, doing standard traditional academic research, or you could find some clever thing to do with corn or soybeans, or you could put on an opera, you know. So the, the tenure documents, when you read them carefully, you realize, I, I read them as saying, you need to do excellent work, 
But what counts as excellent could be many different things. So we need some objective criteria. You can't just say, I'm excellent, give me tenure. Um, But it seemed to me that the documents created the opportunity for many different measures of excellence. And then it just depends if the schools and the departments follow that process. And I found that yeah. the, the school I was at, what is now the iSchool, was very familiar with multidisciplinary research. So they were used to having historians, computer scientists, sociologists, people who'd done traditional librarianship. So the gamut. So they, they could cope with that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas some schools can't. And it, even in the Germanic system, they don't have tenure but there's something called habilitation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that can be really problematic for some people if you're if they're not in a you know in a strict in the middle of a discipline to argue their worth and that, that can impact them getting later jobs you know not tenure but you know has shares some similarities absolutely and mm. i think it's yeah. you know our job as we get more senior to be to speak up for you know a diversity of different ways of doing scholarship and Absolutely. So, you know, I often get asked to, to write tenure cases where someone says, oh, well, I'm asking you because you are a computer scientist and we've got this person who's got a computer science background in our faculty. We've never had one of those before, so we don't know what counts as good. And he's got these papers in this conference called Kai. Is that good? And I say, yes, that's very, very good. In fact, it's probably better than having papers in journals, which I rather suspect not so many people read as Kai papers. So if you really want impact in our field, conferences matter. Mm. So I, I agree with you that I think we have a big responsibility in helping to interpret our, our colleagues' scholarship for other other sort of audiences or people who are not directly in the field. Yes, yes. And, and making those cases. Absolutely. So, yeah. So it's interesting that you said uh, part of that three year or getting into that special track was just checking out if you could do the teaching yes. within an iSchool because you won an excellent teacher award last year. <laughs> yes, thank you. So I, I think I did figure it out in the end. So you must have done it. OK. <laughs> and yes. And they were, they were there was some great mentoring going on there which was often you know not all that formal it's like go to some go to lunch with somebody have coffee with someone to sort of explain um how they did things the kinds of things that students would struggle with and there was a very strong culture of excellent teaching uh, in our school and there still is so yes you've got to do great research but You know, you are expected to be good at teaching at the same Mm -hmm. time. But one of the shifts I noticed was that when I was at Lancaster, I was doing computer-supported cooperative work, mostly from a human-computer interaction perspective, um, and especially interested in the learning. Um, The kinds of things that at times I would describe to people saying, well, I'm at the very soft and fluffy end of software engineering, as opposed to sort of, you know, the hardcore computer engineering side. So I'm at this sort of flaky end of computer science. Then I move to uh, the Graduate School of Library Information Science, and I overhear one of the students saying to another student, "So, so who is this professor Twydale and they said oh he's one of the tech boys (laughs) (laughs) it's all relative isn't it it's all relative (laughs) that's funny that's funny yeah so in in setting up in talking about the mentors that you had did you deliberately seek them out or was there some formal mentorship scheme that you're assigned people and you're doing a regular lunch (laughs) 
there was a, a formal mentorship, but I was also encouraged to seek people out. So yeah. uh, one person I had was Boyd Raywood, who is Australian, an Australian historian, but knew the the British style of academia much better. So he could translate for me into the American style because he had been um, a dean and professor both in the US and in Australia. Um, but as a historian, he just brought a very different perspective to the world than the one I was used to. Uh, and then other people like Betsy Hearn, who um, does um, children's literature and storytelling. So she's a truly expert teacher. Uh, and as you might imagine, is a master storyteller. Uh, I think I've learned a lot uh, from Betsy about the power of storytelling including in the technical world as well. So I'm very interested now in ideas and storytelling with data. Mm. So can you say any more about some of those teaching techniques that, that you've developed over the years, building on those sorts of insights? Um, so one which I'd done a bit at Lancaster but done more at Illinois is trying to do much more hands-on activities in the classroom. So, you know, before we were talking about ideas of flipped classrooms, it's like, okay, here's a bunch of readings. You can read those before. It's graduate school. I could fairly safely rely on keen graduate students to do the readings, but just because they dutifully done the readings didn't mean to say they necessarily understood it. And we can talk about readings, but also it's quite possible to talk about reading and still don't really understand it. But if I can design an activity in the class, then that can reveal, you know, what really mean what it means to understand something and how to move on to the next stage. So I've I've tried a lot of the time to think of what can we do in compressed in-class time so students can have an experience of doing something in a sort of an intense version and then you know, replicate it you know, longer in an assignment. So, for example, if I'm teaching HCI, it's like, can we do some high-speed user studies in groups where each person gets somebody from another group, does a 10-minute user test, sends them back, um, and then say, well, what have we learned in those 10 minutes? We have not learned everything there is possible to know. Clearly, we have not done a proper user study, but there are aspects of it that we can practice. And if we can do three of those in one session, then the first time you do it, it's a disaster. The second time you're starting to know what you're doing. By the third time, they're getting really rather polished at it. And it's okay, now you know how to do a proper user study for your homework. So uh, that's after we've practiced in class as three very small ones, then they can go and do as their homework, a conventional user study in the normal way. Yeah. So that, I like those little quick cycles of try it out and yeah. Yeah. So any, any other sort of teaching insights, just looking at your outstanding <laughs> IS teacher award? Well, thank you. So on, on that theme, uh, one idea I'm exploring now is trying to draw inspiration from agile software development. So in the world of agile, um, often uh, people will say, well, it works especially well when we don't thoroughly understand what the requirements are and they're likely to change very quickly. Uh, and so whatever we do is likely to be wrong. So can we speed up the iteration? So as much as anything, I consider it a learning process. Um, and, you know, I think it works very well. And there are aspects of it like pair programming, which are very clearly about learning, but often it's like learning what the software should be doing in the first place. And so I'm now asking myself, well, 
We know what agile software development is like. It's basically um, anything that fits the agile manifesto. So it's not like there is one magic agile thing. There are a set of methods and any method you come up with that fits the criteria is agile itself. So it's more a meta method or a, an aesthetic. You say, if it, if it has these features, then we call it agile. And to say, how could we use that in inspiration for asking the question, well, what might agile research look like? Um, and, you know, how could we speed up the iterations? Because often our, you know, iteration cycle is you do one very big carefully controlled study and then you analyze it and then then you write it up and then you submit it to a journal or a conference and then the reviewers come back with actually really rather helpful comments sometimes and they think, okay, now I've got to do it again. Oh, a year has passed. And it's like, okay, could we do this in a month, a week, a day? Uh, not as rigorously. So it's not necessarily going to get, you know, get the answer down, but could we have discovered those things we did wrong faster and then in the one year cycle? Exactly. And some of our funding schemes are directly oppositional to that approach oh, because perfect. you have to say seven years ahead what you're going to be yes. doing on the 20th of November, you know, five years hence, <laughs> and, and that you're going to produce a pink widget that goes ping. And you've, you've put your finger exactly on one of my concerns that in the world of software development, um, agile is often contrasted to the waterfall method. And there's a lot of con controversy about, well, is there actually such a thing as the waterfall method or is it a straw man? Um, and, and a the lot waterfall of waterfall method for people who don't know is just this very linear structured path. You do this step and then when you get this set of requirements, then you do this design work, then you do and it's all... Yeah, you know, but it's so all going to be this neat model. Carefully, logically plan it all out in advance. So first, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. And then here's the result. So it all sounds perfectly logical. It's you know the waterfall method in computer science is applied to writing computer programs, which are about as logical as you can get. So of course, a logical method to produce such a logical thing as a computer system is bound to work. Apart from the fact it doesn't, um, and I think the reasons are partly the world is a lot messier than we would like when we're building computer systems. And also, I would say we are fallible human beings. We are not robots and we are not Vulcans. So we can't um, follow this rational method. So we need to mm -hmm. learn as we go. Yeah. Um, so we have this thing called the waterfall method, which often people are required to follow a special especially in industry or for certain defense contracts, even though they know for well it doesn't work, but you just have to do that. Um, and you look into the world of research and you think, see things like a grant proposal or a student thesis proposal that looks perfectly like the waterfall method. And it, it kind of worries me because I know that does not work in computer science. So can it really work well all the time in research? No, it, it, and we don't. We, we're good at our post hoc reconstructions oh, of yes. what we did to make it appear that it's. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. our, so, so that our publication genres encourage that as well. This this uh, easy telling. This this is working. Yeah. How can do you, are you able to influence funding bodies where you are that to to allow for this sort of more agile research model when they give you money? You know, when you write your research proposals. 
So, so far, no, but I have a plan. So my plan, the first plan, of course, is I'm going to write a paper about it. So I've just written a paper trying to justify this um, about why I think it should be considered a reasonable method. Um, I think the other part is to say, well, can we fit it in to a funding body's requirements of deliverables. And it's like, yes, you certainly can provide deliverables in Agile research. Agile is not a trust me method. If anything, it documents things even better than Waterfall does. And you can show your growing understanding over time as you move through the iterations. So it's not impossible. But I think one of the challenges is, um, as you alluded to, we're often tempted to sort of massage the truth of what we actually fully expect to do, plan to do, or retrospectively when we write up, we pretend what we would have done if we'd had perfect insight uh, at the time we started. And and that sort of, you know, is, well, it's firstly, it's lying to yourself, and that's never a very good idea when you're doing research. Um, and secondly, when you point it out, people say, oh, well, everybody does it. We all know that. And I think, well, maybe we do, but maybe that's not very healthy to lie to ourselves. But much, much worse, our students read these papers about how Professor Smith did this perfectly logical thing. And they look at their own practice and say, well, I flounder around and spun all of that. So I'm clearly not doing research the way proper researchers do research. So therefore, I'm not a proper researcher. And that is poisonous. That is very, very problematic. So we need much more honesty um, and transparency about the reality of doing research and the messiness of it. I believe so. And and sharing, we're missing out on sharing the learnings by by doing exactly. this sort of you know this veneer accounting of, of perfect research. Yes, and I think you know this is very important, especially with a growing interest in reproducible research. It's like um, I feel that. We, it would be perfectly okay to have, you know, multiple documents. So one is the, this is what I really did in all its mess and gory details for the small number of people who would like to know the struggles along the way. And this is what I would have done if only I'd known right. So I was sort of floundering around, but here's here's the quick route um, that I can now tell you about with the benefit of hindsight. And so long as you admit that, that thing you're doing is a legal fiction to save other people the time and bother uh, and not pretend that's what mm. you really did. I think that would mm. be fine. It also needs funding bodies to step away from um, the commitment to the output, to the specific output, yes. and rather the commitment to the question that you're exploring and a best articulated guess or plan for how you're going to approach that but allowing for that that iterative learning to occur and that requires different sorts of reviewing criteria and funding criteria. I mean I think that for a lot of um, the research that many of us do in the broad area of human computer interaction computer supported cooperative work if it's really research, we don't actually know what the answer is. We think there's something interesting to be discovered here. We have some guesses about what will happen. But time and again, we discover something far more interesting than what we intended to look for. Um, now, I think there are certain kinds of research, hypothesis testing research, the the classic medical randomized control trial, where actually the whole waterfall method works just fine. You've got one hypothesis, you want to test, does this drug work or not? You've got a simple yes, no question, and then you can 
power through. But often I'm asking questions like, what are people doing with this new technology in their lives? Is it what we think it is or is it something else? I won't know until I look. Yeah. So much more open. Uh, even in the RCT models, though, there's a lot of discussion and debate about you know, it really, I mean, they don't use that same language, but really is it water flow? Exactly. And yes. there's a, uh, the, the, you know, the commitment to uh, publishing your trial plans, like what's yes. the pre-trial publication yes. stuff. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't know um, as much about sort of the debate about the randomized control trial, but I think, you know, there are things that surely there must be sort of learning along the way. And at a certain stage, you might decide your randomized control trial ought to be abandoned, you know, if it's something bad is happening or you discover something better. So at the moment, I'm just saying, okay, if randomized control trial works for you, I'm not going to say it's wrong. But in my world, um, there's often way too many variables going on. This is part of the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary thing that we talked about just earlier is is um, embracing that diversity of ways of asking questions and doing research. Absolutely. And that they, yeah. they're all legitimate. Yeah. Um, if I can just sort of shift subject, because you're also the program director in your school. Yes. So that means that over those 21 years, you have moved into much more sort of senior leadership yes. levels. I'd be really interested just to hear about your experiences as an academic leader and what your learnings, your agile learnings have been there. <laughs> yes. Well, I if you'd asked me this question about five or six years ago, I would say I have no desire whatsoever to do any uh, you know, of these uh, academic leadership things at all, because I really don't think I would be very good at it. Um, so I, I had no ambition to do it. I mm. thought, you know, at some stage, somebody might ask me to do one of these things because they're desperate. But you know, <laughs> boy, you'd have to be desperate to ask me to do it. I, you know, it's like I'm a divergent thinker, all those kinds of things. So, that I so think, that's what I I'm just interested. What were the qualities in yourself that you thought made you a bad fit for that role? So I think partly um, I, I'm good at divergent thinking, at brainstorming. I'm very bad at details, at keeping track of things. I don't think I'm very good at person management and all of that. I like, you know, interacting one-on-one -on -one with peer researchers and small numbers of students. But if you think of a lot of management, I suppose I think of it as like a sort of, you know, hierarchy man management org chart chain of command. And I think, oh dear, I don't think I would be very good at that. Um, so I, I was reluctant and avoiding it. Um, however, this sort of need and opportunity arose that we have our existing uh, Master of Science in Library Information Science, which has been going for like 120 years. This is our flagship product. We're very highly ranked on it. Um, but we'd sort of reached the size limit on that. It wasn't likely to grow. We knew we needed to, to grow to be financially viable because there were um, cutbacks in funding from the state of Illinois, as there are cutbacks everywhere. So there was strong pressure to expand. That would allow us to recruit more faculty, but also stay financially viable. So we were uh, planning a new Master of Science in Information Management. Um, and this was the one where I was asked to 
be director of. Um, and so partly it was that the dean said, <laughs> I think we need you to do it. And I looked in horror and he said, well, who else do you suggest? Exactly. I was looking around and go, oh dear, I see your point. Um, that, you know, everybody else is doing great research and, you know, all these other things. So I thought, well, I'll have a go. Um, and it played to my strengths. So, so I think my dean was very smart. This, this is a brand new degree. So it needs to be sort of created almost out of nothing with a lot of help and coordination um, from uh, fellow faculty. But we don't have a whole load of history behind it. So we have an opportunity to build something new and interesting. Mm. So that kind of got my interest. Uh, and I had been doing looking at all these things around agile. And I had written a little prior article about the idea of I wonder what an agile university would be like. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, well, how can we do this? And one of the things is, I know I don't really know what should be in this Master of Science in Information Management. So I, I know I don't know the full requirements. So how can I design the process so we can learn as we go? So as I was sort of trying to come up with the structures and, you know, getting suggestions and input from people, I try and nudge it so we're not locked into early commitments based on me having to make a, a decision, which is most likely going to be wrong. How can you design something so it's easy to change rather than how do you design something so it's right so you don't need to change it? Oh, that sounded good. So nice. I, I like I like multiple aspects of that. So the fact that you you were aware about what your strengths were and how to work with them, but you weren't afraid to be wrong. You yes. know, you're pushed into this position where you're doing this new thing and you could have adopted a persona of I have to be seen to do it right or otherwise yes. I'll be, they'll think I'm a failure and they shouldn't have asked yes. me anyway because I knew I, I knew I wouldn't be any good at it. Yeah. You didn't do that. You did that whole growth mindset stuff, you know, the agile stuff about what what can we learn and and then very practically setting up the structures to enable that learning. Yes, and I think it was helped by the colleagues around me, so that you know, fellow faculty and um, administrative staff and academic professionals in the school, um, you know, were working with me on this. And I realised that you know one aspect of delegation that I could do was delegate things to people who were really good at doing this thing that I was really bad at doing. And that's partly recognizing strengths and weaknesses in ourselves. And it, it was a struggle because at times I'm inclined to be very egocentric and think, well, if I hate doing it, surely everybody else hates doing it too. <laughs> so I am now going to ask them to do this horrible thing. And then discovering this thing I think is horrible is something they think is really nice. And there's something they think is horrible that I think is fun. So learning what it is that, you know, plays to other people's strengths. And there may be something that everybody hates and that has to be dealt with. But often there are these sort of different strengths and skills that can be played to. Are there any deliberate strategies that you now put in place to try to get to know other people's strengths and mm. skills? Mm. Uh, I think I don't have anything deliberate yet. I think this is part of a getting to know, part of a conversation where you can you can 
read it from their sort of body language if they start smiling yes. about something then this is clearly something they like um and you know i've been very lucky with some uh people and uh, meg edwards who has um had various uh roles uh, in our school um and she's hand handled things like sort of student support and student advising um she is very good at systematizing things and she's very you know she's not afraid to point out problems and say okay here's something that may go and here's a suggestion um and then we discuss it and then i'll say okay i think i need to do some strategizing about it <laughs> but having somebody who has complementary skills uh, but is also you know not embarrassed about raising things that really need to be done and and that is an important i think sort of cultural thing that you know certainly in the uk we're kind of used to a sort of dialectic of arguing back and forth i see the same amongst australian academics but when you move to the midwest there's a lot more of what's sometimes called midwestern nice where people are very polite to each other and so you know you might think you're agreeing and you're not it's just they don't necessarily want to offend you and you know you you obviously play along and so you kind of got to sort of move beyond that to say okay can we talk about this again in in a pleasant encouraging way but to see do we actually ad- agree or do we disagree and what is it that we're actually disagreeing about because often you, you discover you're disagreeing about something that's completely different yeah yeah so there's an authenticity there. And it seems like you have a really important role in establishing the climate, the culture that says it's okay, come and talk to me or let's explore these issues exactly. together. Yeah. Uh, so uh, a, a part of that is I've, I've found it to work much better by he- having a lot of very small meetings, including one-on-one meetings, rather than the sort of big meetings of everybody together. And that's partly, again, I don't think my sp- skill is all that great at chairing these sort of big Mm. meetings i've seen other Mm. people are very good at it um i'm not but those lots of little conversations i find much more productive just to sort of to learn as we go plus i think you know as in a sort of the leadership position it's like look if it goes wrong it's my fault it's not your fault it's my fault that's that's my job it's i don't mind you know it's like i do have the privilege of being a tenured full professor they can't sack me no matter how much i've messed up so you know what you should take advantage of that privilege um to sort of empower other people to sort of talk about things yeah yeah where did you learn all this from oh dear uh i think from a series of actual and implicit mentors so if i go back to lancaster university when i was a you know young grad student and would go to these seminars and our two main professors doug shepherd and ian somerville um whatever the topic of the seminar whoever was talking if one professor spoke in favour of something, the other one would be duty-bound to speak against it. I mean, it's like if, if Doug Shepard speaks in favour of motherhood and apple pie, then Ian Somerville talking in favour of fatherhood and cherry pie. They just always argue just for the sake of having an argument. And of course, back then, I didn't know what a Hegelian dialectic was, but I think I was seeing one. So there was that, And they were you know, very comfortable just arguing about everything. Um, so that, I think, 
led me to sort of you know see one way of like how you've always got to be constantly questioning things you can't just take something as read just because it, it seems obvious um doug shepherd was um head of department he practiced managing by walking around and i saw how well that was um mm-hmm. he also sort of played up his own persona to turn himself into a figure of fun but i think that allowed him to get away with things and so he has these you know strange characteristics not not that i would ever copy this but he had this characteristic of insulting you to your face and praising you behind your back Uh, and but, but mean like seriously insulting you well, to your it, face it's kind of it sort of say you know kind of sort of rude things about your research so so one he was never that rude to me because obviously it was a joke um but he you know when i was in the process of writing up every single time he saw me in the department he said have you written up yet it was like day after day after day he must have shaved five months off my off my traumatic writing up process I think, oh one day doug is going to come around that corner and he's going to say have you written up and i say yes i've submitted so so that was you know in a sense a sort of cartoon-like modeling of you know various ways of looking at things and seeing there are different ways of doing it um the other people i would mention is alan dix mm. who is one of the most brilliant people i know and having a conversation with alan it's like you're at a fire hose at a certain stage you say stop having ideas my brain's full <laughs> so that was somebody who is truly extraordinary incredibly creative and I get to see his creativity comes from his innate playfulness. He plays with ideas. He's very comfortable playing with ideas. And that reminds me that in order to do my best work, I need to create time to mess around. You need that slack. You need that playfulness. I really took it to heart in my research, but I'm increasingly thinking you kind of have to do it in sort of other admin ways as well. And then the final person I'll mention from Lancaster is Tom Rodden, who I know you've interviewed, um, who is incredibly good at sharing and including people in things. He's sort of the great introducer. Uh, I remember because I was working on a very different area of research to him. And there was one thing and he was, they were talking about what they were doing and I made some suggestions and they all started paying attention. And then the next thing I know, um, you know, co-author in a paper. And it's like, oh, that's how it works. You just get welcomed in and you can choose how much to get involved. But, you know, turning up and doing something gets you part of it. And that's... Uh, a process I've tried to replicate throughout my academic life to, you know, invite other people in who want have sort of got something to share. So there were so many, they, they were all really amazing examples of really good techniques, at least in terms of what the literature says around good leadership practices. So, you know, even the um, oh, I can't remember his name that you just said. Your head, you know, oh, when he said, "Have you done your Have you done your thesis yet?" Even yes. though it sort of felt like he was asking it, he, he he was saying, "I notice you. I see you. Yes. I'm aware of where you're at. Yes. How you go?" And you always in his a way. smile on his face. So it's like yeah. I, I know he's doing it because he cares and he really wants me to write up. And I assume he's done that with many other students. And it's like, no, this is really prodding me into action. So I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. And the walking walking around, managing by walking around, what did you see that achieve um, that you thought it was a good thing? So I, I think um, it allows um, people to sort of 
figure out what is is it that people want or what is the problem that they're having with this idea and why. So you're, you're collecting, um, again, I'll go back to it's like collecting requirements. It's like, okay, this is what they're saying, but I need to know more about why are they asking for that? Because often in software development, um, if you ask a client who's not you know, a computer scientist, what do you want? They may say, well, I want that Star Trek computer. You know, you just ask me things, it'll do things for me. And I'm thinking, yeah, that would be very nice. I'd like one of those too, but sorry. You know, just because you ask for it doesn't mean to say I can build it. But if I can find out why you're asking for that, you know, give me an example of the underlying thing, then maybe I can provide something that fulfills your need, but doesn't actually literally provide what you want because I can't do that. Yeah. So is that what you're doing with your one-on-one meetings as well? Because I imagine that in a big gathering, big meeting, people, you're not going to get those same insights. Yes, yes. I mean, I I think often when somebody has a concern about a policy or a suggestion of something we we could do, um, and I think my first reaction is, oh, no, that won't work because of some other thing that I know about that you may not have thought so much about. But the key is not to get into that argument first until you find out why are they proposing this thing and often and again just because they give one reason doesn't mean to say you should stop because often people have multiple reasons for something that again is a classic thing you learn in requirements capture that i think is useful this other process so staying curious and and saying what else what yes yes and i think you know you put your finger on this is something i like doing in my research so if i can bring my skill and interest that in in sort of management and leadership then again i should play to my strengths but then figure out you know what are the other things that need to be done who should be doing those some of them i will have to do myself but if you if you're playing to your strengths you're you're more you know you're going with the grain and this is again as opposed to against things smoothly but these are aren't the strengths that you thought you needed when you thought about you know stepping into these roles exactly no um (laughs) i think it's because i i thought of leadership maybe more as a command and control thing and maybe more as a dealing with a whole load of people all at once thing which i didn't think i could do and i hadn't realized that it can be different things. Mm. Yeah. And if you were you know, your colleague who likes the systematizing things mm. and being, uh, and you, your roles were reversed, they would also play out this role in a very different way and be having a collaboration with you yes. to complement their strengths. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, as our Master of Science and Information Management matures, there are some things that absolutely need to be systematized. There are some things where you think, okay, we've, we've done this a couple of times. We kind of know what we're doing. So now we actually can systematize it. Um, so those that sort of structuring becomes more necessary over time, not least as you get bigger. So there's a lot of things you can do in an ad hoc way when you're small that we all know don't scale well. And that pops up a lot in the agile software development where they emphasize you need small teams. And if it's a big project, break it down into lots of small teams. But, you know, again, the small team thing works because of the way human beings relate to each other. Um, and then for something else, you need, I hesitate to say the word, but more bureaucratic structures. Um, one thing that we're talking about 
currently in our school is the need for more knowledge management, where there are things where we you could just reside in everybody's heads when we're just you know a relatively small faculty. But when you double in size or triple in size, it's like, okay, we used to know all of each other, but now we need other ways of recording things or um, collecting stories. So storytelling is very big in our school. We often use um, suitably anonymized storytelling of you know different things that different students have done to help um, existing students imagine themselves doing something. So for example, um, some of our students have a very fixed linear view of how you get a job. They think there is the one right way, and if they don't do that, then they're doomed. Um, whereas if we've got a collection of stories of five, six, seven people who got jobs in very different ways, then that, I think, reveals it. So you need this sort of repertoire of stories, in this case, to show a diversity of examples or to show how doing graduate studies at a big American research university might be different to um, what it was like being a very successful undergrad. So if they come into our program, they probably were a very successful undergrad. But even moving from undergrad in American research university to grad school is different, even more different if you've moved from a, a small liberal arts college in America, or you've moved from a big engineering um, school in India or China. Uh, Many of the expectations of what you're meant to do, what counts as success, are different. And if we don't bother to explain those to people, then that seems to me very unfair. And this issue goes back to my interest in learning. A lot of the time we have tacit knowledge, things we know, but somehow we never actually bother to tell anybody what they are. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Kel Schmidt wrote a really great article about it some years ago, and I'm still teasing with it in my mind about how can I go about detaciting things. Mm. It also is sort of related to that thing you said before about you think that if you don't like doing something, everyone else doesn't like yes. doing it. You just, you know, sort of the things that you think you just take for granted because they Absolutely. are, but they're not, or you, yes. things that you, and yeah, not being aware of what you know that you know you know mm. exactly yeah and are you doing that sort of storytelling within the faculty so there's students doing it that are sort of uh, bringing to life the student journey and the different possibilities which is going to be much more effective than just you know a bullet point points list of what are your career alternatives so are there ways that you are also thinking about bringing storytelling into the faculty experience now that's a really thought-provoking idea so there's some of it happens already and i think it's partly the culture of our school because we actually teach classes on storytelling so we know it is you know as a, a legitimate normal thing um i think it was kind of easier back in the old days when we were a relatively small faculty because there were fewer of us so we all sort of talked to each other more and so we need to put more effort into doing it as there's just more of us. But yes, I think that is one thing where it should be easier to do because it's not really in our faculty introducing a new thing. It's reminding us of a thing that we often you know, do anyway, especially with students. So yeah, I think that's something to, to bring in more of. So, so what would be some of the things that it would be good to hear stories about that we don't hear about now what would be some of the tacit things that you think would be useful um so for um 
new professors and doctoral students considering an academic career, I think um, all too often we hear stories of inevitable success. This person who was incredibly smart and so just smoothly and effortlessly did smart things. Um, And we hear fewer stories of the struggling around and things going wrong and how people overcame adversity Um, or even the things where people admit, I don't really know what I'm doing. And then I found something and then it all clicked into place. And apparently all those other things that I did that I felt were random, in retrospect, all seemed terribly logical, but they weren't. Um, So those revealing the processes, I think also to the extent that um, people who've been successful are willing to admit how much of it appears to be due to luck. Um, And, you know, it's not pure luck because often it's like you've seized an opportunity but a thing happened and you just happened to be in the right place at the right time and you were able to seize that opportunity and another thing happened and you weren't able to seize it but you went to this place which increased the odds of being lucky the next time round and that the the factor of luck happenstance we often don't want to tell because it doesn't fit the, the the heroic story um, but, you know, it, it's still there's still an issue of seizing that, but helping you know, people to realize don't be dispirited if one doesn't work out, these things happen. Yes. Yeah. We'd like and to. that's yeah, it's a story you hear often when you actually talk to people. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we'd like to believe that the world is rational. We'd like to believe mm. that things like we have a, a, a rational process for deciding which papers get accepted at conferences. And we try very hard. And But, you know, some things will, which are really great won't get through. Some things that are really not at all great do get through. And I'm afraid it's the same in the hiring process. We'd like to believe that our system is perfectly rational. But it's not. Maybe you actually were the best person for the position and we were just lacked the ability to discern that. Um, no, I don't think you did anything wrong. You were just unlucky. Yeah. So do you do, are you involved in hiring people where you are? Yes. And are there any particular things that you do that you think are worth drawing out or that are different? Oh, dear. Um, I... No, I think, I mean, we try so hard, to be fair. We we try to see the whole person. We try to take into account their circumstances. We definitely try to be open to different research approaches and methods. Um, and I would say, with all that hard trying, there are times when I think, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's like, the thing is, you often have a short list of, you know, some really incredible people, and you have to pick one. Uh, normally, you're very happy with the person you picked, but there's somebody else, someone else who you sadly couldn't pick. And you think, well, I do hope they get some, you know, some other positions you know, very quickly because I think they were great too. So I think this is one of those incredibly difficult issues where. There are, you know, there are a limited number of slots. Often there's just one slot. And, you know, you're trying your best, but it's not going to be perfect. And in the end, even though you've got sort of some objective criteria that you're trying to judge against, in the end there does come down to some sort of 
feel, gut feel, doesn't yep. it, about the yep. culture fit and the, the committee sort of somehow agreeing. Yeah, yeah it's just yep. – that's tough. And that's – yeah. And I think there's also the side of whatever happens, you can find a way of making some stuff work yes. as well, whether you get that job that – or maybe you didn't get that job and in, and in an ideal world you actually would have been the best person. Yes. Yeah. There will still be another job that you can get, hopefully – Absolutely. So that reminds me of Lee Estabrook, who was the dean of the Graduate School of Library Information Science. She recruited me. And one of her famous phrases is, no grant proposal is ever wasted. So you wrote your proposal, you didn't get the money, but there is value in this and you will be benefiting from that in a future way you probably don't know about. It's, it's very comforting because many fail, many fail, many grant proposals fail. And indeed, and that's also a good strategy as as a as a dean because she's not saying bad you you failed your yes. grant or it got rejected yes. try again she's yes. she's reinforcing that learning cycle that Absolutely. that you've been talking about in lots of things yes uh, and I think that when when a faculty works well it's nurturing um, and it's like a family that recognises that each individual in the family is different and unique. Yeah. Yeah. So if you – it sounds like you're characterising your faculty very beautifully as a nurturing <laughs> faculty. What are, are there other practices that you do that you could reflect on that help provide or build that nurturing culture? Ooh. So I, I think – Partly, it's it's always been there, so that's nice. You know, as far as, far as I, I'm concerned, it was there, and so we've managed to sustain it. I think we put a lot of effort into um, the faculty retreats that we have twice a year, where we all get together, and there are various items on the agenda. But a lot of it is just sort of you know sharing ideas, and often going back to your previous question, I realise we do share stories there, and again, I'm, I didn't occur to me until now that that is you know one of the places we try and do it um more formally structured uh, through formal structures or more at the bar afterwards having i, I think it, it's a a mixture so sometimes there are you know people of taking charge at different times will organize an activity during the one-day faculty retreat where we'll spend two hours doing something or in smaller groups and so there's quite a lot of story telling going on there because I think it's a thing that many of us spontaneously do in order to, to share an idea and I, I find it it's more powerful than when you try and talk in abstract terms so the concrete details of multiple stories really help um, but what's key is to try and invite more than one story because the, the risk is if you just have the one story then that becomes you know the one and only way it is um, what else do we do i think it's um hallway conversations also where people are um collaborating around um, teaching so there may be three people teaching three different sections of the same class so they will meet up to compare notes and see what's going on and, and share ideas or a common one is I'm taking over a class this semester that you taught last semester so I'll go and ask you for advice and you know, things to do so I think those are some of the ways it happens. I mm. suspect there are others I can't immediately think of. So it sounds very collegial and it sounds like it's it's 
very normal to say, I don't know something. Can you help me out or can we chat about it? So I hope it is. Um, Again, I think we have to recognize that you know if you're you're coming in you've just fresh out finish your phd your new assistant professor it can mm. be a little bit intimidating and so we've got to be welcoming to that um, and i think it is a challenge when you look around you know your your now your peers and you realize that people are doing truly amazing things and it can be disconcerting if you compare yourself and particularly if you compare yourself to somebody else they say oh well you know he's a really great teacher and she's got no end of publications and he's got all these grants and she does all this amazing service and outreach and i have to be the union set of all of those people it's like even those superhuman people can't do all of those things yeah yeah but it goes back to what you said about making more visible some of the processes and getting there and and that it yeah. yeah And telling stories and letting people make their own choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What do you do to look after yourself? Because it sounds like you're busy teaching, program director. How do you, you know, how does your life happen around all this? (laughs) How do you manage that? This is where I think I'm very much out of kilter and I need to do more on this because – Champaign-Urbana is a very easy place to live. Um, the, somebody did the statistics. The average commute time to work is 12 minutes. So long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I tell myself, mine is indeed, I think, 12 minutes. So, um, yeah, so that is very, very pleasant. It's all very easy. Um, that is nice. Um, but there's always this temptation just to do more and more and more and more work and keep on doing it. And that can be problematic and can be unhealthy so i try and make time for myself at the weekends and that's about you know taking bits of exercise reading interesting books so not necessarily things that are directly work related maybe things that are you know potentially but you know things where i think okay this this feels like different from the everyday thing um i do travel a lot i now try and tack it on a you know an extra day of sightseeing either end that kind of thing this is like after i've traveled to this amazing place it's silly not to you know fold in a bit of time and for heaven's sakes i'm spending all these other extra hours and things i mean you know we don't have to fill out timesheets and these things but it's like you owe me an awful lot of overtime so if i take some time off to go for a little walk and i'll end up having a research idea on that walk anyway yes Yes. In fact, you're more likely to have a research idea on that walk if the research is correct. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I find time and again that, you know, once I've I've got to sort of set a puzzle in my head and then leave it to my subconscious to chew over and then something will pop out. But that needs a little bit of time and relaxation and I can't force it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I'm just conscious of time marching on. Are, are there any things that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about or mention? No, I, I well, what do I think? Um, I was listening to the podcast you did with Tom Rodden. And mm-hmm. I, it's very inspirational. It just sums Tom up perfectly. For somebody who's never met Tom, listen to that podcast. That's how he is. Uh, and one of the things he emphasized is do good work and other things will flow out of that. Um, and he mentioned, you know, many of the 
problems with metrics. And this is something that I'm increasingly interested in, almost looking at them as part of a socio-technical system. So the socio-technical system I'm interested in is the doing of science. And I've said, you know, there are problems there where people use the waterfall method, where, you know, maybe something more agile would help. Um, but I think we can look at some of the metrics of um, success that are used and saying, okay, um, people want to measure success or impact, um, but these are big ineffable concepts. So then we invent a proxy. That's classic science, you invent a proxy. But we have to always remember it's the proxy, it's not the thing itself. And then people start to think the proxy is the thing and then seem to be very surprised that smart human beings will work very hard to make themselves look good under yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that's, that's your new faculty member looking at the uh, the the, the um, depictions of themselves that people have created against yes. those sort of metrics that make them appear incredibly successful. And I mean, I'm sure they are, but it's that it's that that's the only thing that gets pulled out. Absolutely, it, yes. It defines what stories we tell about ourselves, doesn't it? Those it, metrics. It really does, and I think you know the 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 challenge is to allow the telling of other stories um, and I think you know there are various ways we can do that by showing how a reducing things to a single number allows you to add up multiply divide compare that's what you can do with numbers um, so you gain certain things by turning something into a number but you lose a whole load of other things about what does it mean why the bigger story so you know Quantitative data is very valuable, but so is qualitative. And if you can get the two working well together, it's really productive. How could you use that, though? Because in the if you think about hiring, just that we were talking about before, and you've yeah. got you know, 50 applications in front of you, you know, you could argue that, or, or governments trying to mm -hmm. decide how to allocate funds, you know, numbers provide a way of dealing at scale. They do. Um, and I think they can help us when we really want to be fair and we really worry that we have biases. Um, the trouble is, I think we think, oh, that number is unbiased. <laughs> it's like, OK, the, there are other biases there, too, that we need to be aware of. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm just thinking this now as, as you ask the question, but I think often it's like, well, we're using these numbers as a proxy for something else. What's that something else? we're actually looking for and what other other ways you know supplementary evidence to find that so i would say if it's somebody who's just finished their phd so they're applying as an assistant professor um i'm looking for potential you know they may have achieved some things but it's really i'm looking for what you know could they become in the future and then you sort of look at like well what are some indicators of potential and some are things that they've done um some of it is ooh, a questioning mind well how would i find that out you know are there indicators of that in other things where they've got some you know if they're coming fizzing with ideas of all the things they wanted to do but their advisor didn't let them do it until they'd written up their thesis it's like okay yes well of course you can't do all of those but you are thinking lots of things um but that can't be the only way because uh, you know different people will show potential in different ways but getting reminding ourselves it's just a proxy and what are we trying what are we wanting it to be a proxy for 
may help. Yeah. And it's a biased proxy. Yes. And recognising what it can be good for, but not over uh, believing in it. Yes. Yes. I'm going to take editor's privilege here and splice in a little bit of the conversation that Mike and I continued to have after we thought we'd finished recording for the podcast. I'd been discussing how many of the uh, behaviours and, and approaches that he talked about taking had a lot of research support behind them in terms of why they work. And we got to talking about psychological safety, a concept from Amy Edmondson, and this is the continuation of it. Yeah, I mean, I th- you know, this I think is, you know, a challenge for us because as academics we're encouraged to be very individualist, to sort of, you know, plow our own furrow to build a lab that kind of thing and often universities are set up almost like co-working spaces where every academic is their own entrepreneur and then the job of the dean is to sort of basically provide a space and wi-fi and that's all well and good (laughs) stay out of the way exactly stay out of the way (laughs) and that you know there's a lot of merit in that i don't want to denigrate it but then you know it's like you don't have to do it all on your own there are people there to help you and that that we can find it hard to do that because we're so pressured and think we're just this sole entrepreneur and there is some point where we are you know, doing some of our own thing but yeah, yeah. not as much as what we think yeah yeah, yeah. well um mike thank you very much for your time it's been really interesting and i'm and all the very best in setting up the new program it sounds well, like it's you. great and doing a brilliant job <laughs> we shall see about that <laughs> but it's certainly fascinating experience yeah great thank you thank you Geraldine you can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com you can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher and you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.